Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Herman Portocarrero. He's a Belgian-born writer and diplomat of Spanish and Portuguese descent. He's published more than 20 works of fiction and nonfiction in Europe. Between 1995 and 2017, he was ambassador in Havana for his native country and later for the European Union and developed a deep professional and personal relationship with Cuba, Havana, and her people. His most recent book is Havana Without Makeup, Inside the Soul of the City. If I had to describe Herman, it would be as a renaissance man, and I'm sure Wikipedia will update that entry with a link to him. He and I had a great conversation about his book, his life, the nature of diplomacy, and a host of other things. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Herman Portocarrero. Herman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I have so much I want to ask you about. But first of all, I, I've done a little research on you. I mean, you're a man of letters. You've, you're a writer. You're a musician. You do visual arts, right? You paint. Yeah, it's a little confusing sometimes. It's, it's easier to, to be known for, for one talent and then to, to be a renaissance man, as they call it these days, because people want to, to focus on, on one, of your, uh, one of your achievements. I was a musician before I became a writer. I studied classical guitar when I was young, but then I realized that I would never be that good at it. And uh, writing, it's not just a hobby or um, it's, or a creative occupation. It's it's become a second profession, and, and I managed somehow to to keep it up during the years that I was very active as a diplomat, and I, I had a very active life because I worked with the United Nations for a long time, which is very demanding. But I somehow managed to uh, to always make time to write and it, it created a kind of continuity in, in my life when even when I was moving from one place to the other um, and you were involved in like literary circles I mean you were not not really that not really that much because I, I started publishing in Europe um, after living in Ethiopia for almost five years and I didn't have that many contacts with with uh, with the literary world um, I wrote a kind of eccentric short novel that I sent to a number of publishers and I got accepted and that that was that opened the door to, to my literary career in, in Europe. And then I, uh, I wrote a number of works of fiction and slowly started to drift more into nonfiction. But I, I was never part of literary circles, neither in Europe nor, nor here. But when I was working in New York, I was also too busy. I occasionally saw people from, from publishers socially, but I, I was always a, a bit of a, of a loner as a writer. Uh, I don't read much fiction either, uh, so I, I don't really know very much what's going on in the literary it's, world. It's, it's amazing you could write it without being without reading a lot because I think most people couldn't do well, that. Well, I, I read history and biographies mostly and then some detective stuff uh, and I go back to my classics very often. Uh, but I'm, I'm not not really much aware of, of current uh, fiction. Or not at all. Neither in Europe nor in the United States, I have to say. So, with all the things you've done, I'm guessing the diplomatic core or, or the however things get selected in Europe works differently than here. Because I, when I think of our State Department, I'm not thinking Renaissance men. But maybe the stereotype is wrong. I'm thinking oh, well. the civil service test must be different in Europe. 
it's it's possible. It's 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 a matter of social class too. I come from a very humble background, and and even in in a place like Belgium, which is a very democratic society, uh, there are not that many diplomats who, other than from the from the higher castes in the society. I would say so. I'm a bit of an exception in in that regard as well. Um, on the other hand, um, the gossip always said, "Well, you diplomats, you don't have anything to do but play tennis and write books." You know that was in there was a certain <laughs> tradition in in Europe. Certainly, there were uh, very good writers, like in in France and and in Spain, um, who were diplomats or former diplomats because you do accumulate experiences. Um, in the US, I'm I'm not immediately aware of of well-known writers that had a diplomatic background. Um, it, it, it may be. Yeah, I don't think Rex Tillerson has written. Much. <laughs> That, I, that I've read, but he he may still have potential. <laughs> so, at what point do you figure out I want to be a diplomat? I mean, were you good at sorting out fights with your family or at, in, in 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 high school? I mean, at what point? How do you know? Like, hey, I think this is what I well. Do. Um, the thing is, I'm I studied law. I practiced law for a short time in Belgium, and I came to the conclusion that it it was not real for me. I found it uh, first of all, uh, there were not that many international law firms back then, and uh, again, my family background was not such that I had uh, access to to that world. I started practicing as a as a, a low level lawyer, uh, coming to the conclusion that I was not going to make any money, and on the other hand, I didn't want to. To, to, to be stuck in the lower middle class. Um, and I wanted to see the world and I came to the conclusion that uh, being a diplomat, it had a certain glamour to it. Um, and, and yet it was socially solid because I was a bit of a social climber. So uh, all those things together uh, made me go to, into the recruitment system. While I was doing my military service back then, there was mandatory military service in Belgium. So I, I passed the, the exams for the Belgian equivalent of the State Department while I was in the army. And as soon as I came out of the army, I had a job and a paying job. Uh, as a lawyer, I had to pay my, my social uh, charges and my own health insurance. And I wasn't, I wasn't making any money at all. So I, coming out of the army, uh, I joined the, the Belgian Foreign Service. That was in October 77. So I'm 40 years ago, practically to the day. Um, and then uh, as of January next year, I was posted in Paris. Oh, wow. And then after a year and a half there, I, I wanted something more adventurous than Paris. So I asked to be sent to Ethiopia, which was uh, quite adventurous back in the, in the late 1970s. <laughs> I'd say it's probably early adventurous often it's, it's pretty adventurous even now, but then it was, it was even a bit more so. Um, and then I had, I had a bit of a... A career that was determined by by certain areas in the world. I went from Ethiopia to Jamaica, which was interesting, because as you know, the Jamaican Rastafarians they they have Ethiopia as their reference point. They think that the Emperor Haile Selassie was was a reincarnation of Christ and whatnot. So I did this kind of African diaspora thing. I, I went from from Africa to the Caribbean, and then from Jamaica to New York for the first time in 1985. Um, what, what were you doing in New York? Um, I was a young diplomat at the Belgian mission to the United Nations. As was that a good gig? Um, it, you need a lot of patience to be a diplomat at the UN. Um, 
It's, it was interesting. Well, our president says he's going to make the UN great. Well, good luck to him. <laughs> to try to improve things. We, at the, the way you work long days, you, you listen to endless speeches and uh, you read unreadable texts and you end up writing unreadable speeches yourself. Uh, but I always had a, a more critical eye for it. I thought it was uh, interesting as a process, but not very result-oriented. Uh, that was before the end of the Cold War. Nevertheless, I have to say, I had some great experiences at the UN. I, I was in the General Assembly room when Gorbachev made his speech in December 88, which was basically the end of the Cold War. I was sitting there and very close to the front when the world changed in, in one speech. It, it was the end of the Warsaw Pact. It was the unilateral withdrawal of all the troops uh, from Eastern Europe. A year later, the wall came down. And I've had remarkable encounters. I met Nelson Mandela at the UN, uh, met people that really made an impression on you. But you pay the price for it. A lot of it is routine. It's extremely bureaucratic and, again, not result-oriented. Uh, then I had very frustrating experiences with peacekeeping. I was involved with the peacekeeping efforts during the Balkan Wars. Uh, you were on the ground there? Uh, no, I was, forth, I, was, like, no yeah. I was doing coordination work uh, because we had Belgian contingents there who did somewhat better than others, but it was still very frustrating and you felt powerless to stop the, the carnage that was going on in Bosnia. Uh, I, was, I was not in the field. I was doing coordination work uh, on the phone and from behind the desk in, in New York and in Brussels, but it was still very frustrating to, as a European and a diplomat that we could not stop this war from breaking out in the first place and then that you felt so powerless to do anything about the consequences uh, uh, including the, the UN troops that were practically held hostage by the, by the various warring factions there. So it was it was a very uh, negative experience for me. When you were like so, okay, as people that know very little about diplomacy and how things work, or, or many, I'm sure many listeners don't have extensive familiarity with it. You said you, you thought it would be glamorous. I mean, were there what were the kind of the glamour moments? And were there any like was there cloak and dagger stuff? Were you ever part of things that were that were sort of you know? Intelligence-related kind of things. Yeah, to some extent. Uh, when I started out in Ethiopia, uh, remember, they had a communist regime. The, the, uh, Addis was full of spies because the Soviets were there, the Cubans were there. This is an interesting side story where my first Cuban connections come from. They come from Ethiopia. Strangely enough. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, spies among diplomatic personnel, certainly at the U.S. Embassy. Um, <laughs> the thing is, I thought they were never very good at camouflaging themselves. They always stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> you you <laughs> yeah. can tell, oh, that guy's CIA yeah, right there. Yeah. Just, um, what, what, what tipped them off? Um, they were nervous about working in that kind of environment. Um, they blew their cover constantly as far as I was concerned. <laughs> they, they, were, they were not very good. Do you ever at pull one aside? Like, do you ever think of a different kind of line of work? Because the KGB is going to kill you. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. if I can tell. Well, I... It didn't come to, to those extremes, but uh, the, the typical setup was that it, they would have to to, uh, to pose as a married couple and, and you could tell after you'd, you'd met them a couple of times that they were not really married and that they were not a couple. You, were they fighting too it. much or not fighting no, no, enough? They were not fighting enough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there was a bit of cloak and dagger there. Um, glamour, well... 
it's it's maybe in the in the public perception, you know, uh, when when you want to sell a high class product, you call it uh, embassy or ambassador or uh, or diplomat. Um, it's an image that's still there, and it's not entirely untrue, of course. Uh, when I moved on to my more exotic postings uh, in the Caribbean and, and even in Cuba, you do have these beautiful cocktail parties under palm trees with, with people uh, in in white uh, dinner jackets serving your cocktails those things do exist <laughs> um, it's not only that most most of my life has been hard work um, out, out of my almost 40 years of diplomacy I, I lived close to 15 years in New York and most of that was with the United Nations where you have long days uh, often working the weekends um, and, and as I said it's it's not very result oriented uh, but it's also addictive to some extent uh, I, I still have a, a weak spot when I see the UN building even when I see it on CNN or the, because I know the building inside out uh, I've spent the best years of my life in the basement because unfortunately that building is, is, is not very welcoming for, uh, for the diplomats that work in there. You spend <laughs> most of the time you're negotiating unreadable texts uh, somewhere at, 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 um, uh, in the basement of the, of the General Assembly building. <laughs> but then again, as uh, I said, it, it compensates. Uh, I spoke in the Security Council once, which was quite an experience. And I spoke in that, that big room of General Assembly a number of times. Um, the Security Council is more intimate. It's, uh, it's the more important one, but the when you're standing at the rostrum in the General Assembly Hall, it's quite impressive. Uh, you feel it's like it was meant to be the focal point of the world. I'm not sure it it did become that, but it, it still feels when you're standing there, it's you're still a little impressed. I'm, I'm used to <laughs> I'm used to speak in public, but I have to admit that when I when I was standing there, uh, the, the rostrum of the General Assembly, uh, where so many people have stood both good and bad ones. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's impressive. The, the one time I, I spoke in the Security Council, I, I remember when it was because it was my wife's birthday and because uh, I was not a member of the Security Council, I was invited to speak because it was about uh, the peacekeeping disaster in Rwanda and, and Belgium had uh, asked for the floor. But you have to wait till, till all the grown-ups have spoken. So I was the last one to speak. Madeleine Albright was presiding Oh, wow. I remember that because she was UN ambassador then. And because I was last to speak, I was late for my wife's 40th birthday party, which was downtown. <laughs> the things we so, do for love yeah, of yeah, the UN. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was still an experience. Uh, when you're sitting there thinking, well, here I am now speaking in the Security Council, you know, who would have thought? My mother would have been proud, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, she had passed away already, but... Um, it, it still does things to you. Uh, in conclusion, the UN can never live up to expectations. Um, it has avoided the Third World War, yes. Uh, I don't believe much in, in peacekeeping as such, but it's an important norm setter. And it's always important that there is a forum when, where everybody can talk with everybody else. Yeah. That as such is a merit and, and a big plus for the UN. But I don't see it as, as really solving all our problems, certainly not in politics. It may do more in the economy, certainly now for things like global warming, uh, women's rights, uh, fighting extreme poverty, things like that. Uh, and it's a very important normative body uh, at the moment when, when human rights are under attack because there's a lot of cultural re relativism about human rights. But the UN is still standing as a rock, uh, defending un the universality of human rights. So it's an important norm setter, much more than an operational agency, I think. You've written a fabulous book called Havana Without Makeup. And you, you say that you write about Havana 
with the, almost like the way a lover with affection and honesty. I mean, the way the way you would have for someone you love. Yeah, it it is. It's a declaration of love, but it's it's a ripe love. I fell in love with Havana uh, in 1995. I've known the city for more than 20 years, and I would write differently about the city 20 years ago than I do today. I, I also know her shortcomings, but the love and the and the admiration has only gotten deeper. But at the same time, I see the ugly sides as well. And you you were there originally with Be- working with the Belgian government, and then you later went back. Yeah, as the EU yeah. ambassador, is it is that that sounds complicated? Be, be, for, like representing the entire European Union. Well, it's complicated. In the case of Havana, it, it may be easier in other places. Uh, it, it was complicated because there are many shades of opinion when it comes to Cuba within the European Union. Basically, you have three blocks of member states, the ones that are very favorable and, and very friendly, say France, the Netherlands, Italy. Uh, then you have the ones uh, that are very negative, and that's mostly the former communist countries in Eastern Europe because they don't want to have anything to do with the communist system because they, they come from there and it's, it's from the gut. They, they hate it. And then there is a group that's somehow in the middle, uh, mostly looking at uh, at commercial ties and tourism that, that don't have strong Cuban constituencies either for or against. But to keep that whole family together, um, and, and as as an ambassador of the EU, I was the well, we say the boss, like the hostage of all the other EU ambassadors uh, to try to keep everybody together, at least on the essentials and make sure that uh, there, there was a message uh, what the EU could contribute to the future of the country. And that's important because Cuba is so close to the United States that uh, it, it might gradually return to a situation where the, the public sector is neglected, where education goes down. If, if you don't see it somewhat from a European perspective, we would fight to, to maintain a viable public sector, to maintain free healthcare, to maintain quality education. And that's more the European agenda. When it comes to day-to-day politics, uh, we had very different opinions within the group, but at least for those essential messages, we, we could keep them together. And that was my, my constant work, basically, on a day-to-day basis, How to, to send out that unified message and you get a lot of european tourists coming in and out right of cuba i mean well the largest numbers well the largest single uh number is canadians i think that's more than more than a million a year Uh, but then you have uh, italians uh, spanish french dutch um i think altogether probably around 30 percent of tourists uh, are from eu countries as i was reading your book i was thinking I'm an American and I don't know anything about Cuba. <laughs> and I guess that, I, I would guess that's fairly too. I mean, I, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent guy and I try to keep up with world affairs. But I mean, it just, I, I felt incredibly ignorant. And, want, it, it, and it's, it's a place that has a, a rich, textured, textured, complicated history. Um, it, it's, I mean, do, do you do you get that sense when you talk to most Americans that they, there's something 80 miles from our border and we just... We have a complete sort of well, the it's, mystique and it's, ignorance. It's, it's weird. It's due to politics, of course, because there was a very intimate relationship between uh, Cuba and the United States. It was an investment. It was a playground. I would always say it was the mistress, yeah. it was the mistress of the United States till, till 1959. <laughs> and then all of a sudden that changed overnight. It became to be seen as hostile and, and from a very familiar uh, place, it became a forbidden fruit. And that uh, at the same time, 
dangerous, but still seductive. The thing is, it was one-way traffic because Cubans were always much more aware of the United States than the United States was aware of Cuba. The Cubans yeah, never, say, never lost, lost their knowledge of the United States. You say in the book that most Cubans, that's the one culture they know outside of their own. Yeah. And, and most of them like it. I mean, there's, there's a They love it. They love it. It's, it's often frustrating for European diplomats that you try to, to, to explain the good things of the European systems to Cubans. <laughs> What do you see in their eyes? Well, you know, but I want to be in Miami, basically. <laughs> or I want to live like I was, like I was in Miami. And it's, it's due in large part to the, to the diaspora. Um, it's well over a million of Cubans in, in Miami. There's a large uh, community in New Jersey. And those family ties never disappeared. Uh, the families here are sending money. They are, they are now buying properties. Um, and so the, the interaction is, is very, very personal and very private. Uh, there is basic baseball, which, which unites Cuba and, and U.S. Um, you see much more of American cinema in Cuba than you would think. Um, uh, most Cubans have not missed a good American movie because they come on TV. They may be pirated copies, but somehow they will get to see it. Um, the idea that Cuba is isolated is an idea that's sometimes cultivated in the United States, but it's not true. It's, it's maybe isolated when seen from a U.S. political perspective. But as a matter of fact, the societies interact and have interacted much more than you would think. Do you, when when you talk to when you worked with American when you talk with talk with American counterparts, I mean, did you ever have frank conversations about like, hey, I've been in Cuba a long time. Your policy's a little insane. <laughs> well, all the time. But the thing is, the because we don't treat Vietnam like that, and we've had a war. You know, no, we didn't. We didn't treat the. Like, yeah, but it's 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 spite. Cuba was so close, and it it was as I said, an investment in the playground. Then you lost it, and for all kinds of complicated reasons during the Cold War, then Cuba went completely over to the other side. Um, so it's it's still spite at the loss uh, because it's true. Why would you treat other countries that have also questionable human rights policies, etc., and much worse than Cuba? Very often, why why do you treat them normally uh, as partners and and as economic uh, in, in economic relations, and you don't do it with Cuba? It's because Cuba is too close, and it was too close, and there is still spite at the loss of it. Now, I don't think we we can ever go back to 1959. Cuban society is different. You can't undo 50 years of history. Um, and also, Florida has a lot of electoral votes. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, segment. but you know, there's the, the segment, thing is, like it's weird. Domestic yeah, but, politics are weird. But like if that. you if you look at the at the opinion polls over the last two years, uh, three four years, even from before the the uh, reestablishment of diplomatic relations, uh, most of the the majority, even in Florida, was for normal relations with Cuba. Of course, it flared up during the the, camp, the, the presidential campaign, and and then you get the old guard. Uh, getting more influence again. But by and large, even in Florida, uh, people are for normal relations. Um, so I, I don't know how it will play out now. I don't know what the, the Cuba policy is under review. I don't know how it will play out. But um, we had over the last two years uh, a, a tremendous growth in, in tourism from the United States. And that's not just not just the Cuban-Americans. That's half a million people coming and going every year anyway. But you had uh, hundreds of thousands of tourists coming, including cruise ships, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the book that, you, that President Obama showed respect. And I think the, he did and great. The culture, the cultural value that was huge. That he was respectful as a of Cuba as a as a dialogue partner. Yeah, I think he did really well. Um, 
without giving up on principles. He still stated that he would not agree with, with the political system, but it is possible to have respectful dialogue and to be good neighbors. And I think it was uh, quite an achievement to, to have that reconciliation because it also it was done so discreetly. I was thinking as a European diplomat, would we be able to pull it off? And I don't think so. We would have had leaks uh, after a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> this was done very professionally. Um, and I think it's a pity that this is being put in question again now, because whatever you may think about your neighbors, it's better to, to, to have a normal relationship with them and to talk, especially when you don't agree. Uh, it's, it's always been my message is when we don't agree that we have to talk. If, <laughs> yeah, if, if we if, agree, if, we don't have nothing to discuss about. So right. After the Iran deal, President <laughs> Obama said, right, we don't make deals like this with your friends. I mean, you, you, yeah. you have to, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, so I hope the, um, everything that has been achieved since, uh, over the last two years since the reconciliation stands, the societies will continue to interact. Uh, academics, journalists, musicians, artists, those links are, are becoming stronger and stronger. The remittances are flowing. Uh, President Trump is very careful not to touch the financial side of the relations with Florida. <laughs> um, if there are new political obstacles, it, I would, would find it very regrettable uh, because the, the European Union has been through highs and lows with Cuba. And again, I'm now a private citizen. I'm not speaking for the EU anymore. But under any kind of circumstances, what we do is keep channels of communication open. And that's what a diplomat is supposed to do. And I think uh, President Obama did very well in that respect. My US colleagues did very well. Uh, and so did the Cuban side. They, they didn't overreact even when uh, there were outrageous comments. They, they wanted to keep it professional. And they handled it very well, I think, uh, from the Cuban side. So it would be a pity if that would would be undone you write in the book about havana at night Havana at night and it is i mean i it made me sad that i've never been <laughs> at night i mean well, especially not especially with you i would like to go there with I'm, you I'm, I'm glad to be so convincing i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning afternoon or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit empathy reflection and human understanding if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects i've got in the works being a patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david and winona babico michael butera peter stegenwald samantha blythe sari graham jordan and danny morseberger josh redder ellis brazil and david zoll if you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Havana at night is, is even a more surreal place than Havana by daytime, of course, because uh, 
everything com comes out of dark corners and uh, you feel the place really as, as an, an organic being almost. Uh, it has a beauty all of its own, even in its decay. Um, and it, it grabs you really um, with a kind of intimacy. Um, th there's no other city I know of that has this kind of texture where, the, the, say, the border between flesh and stone, between humans and buildings is so blurry. Uh, everything is alive. And, and at night, I'm a night person, basically. I, I, I've had to force myself for 40 years to get up in the morning, but if it were up to me, I would not come out of my bed before midnight. And, and Havana <laughs> is, is really very welcoming at night. Also because it's, it's still a, a very safe city and, uh, it, for, for being in that part of the world. Uh, I could go out in, in most neighborhoods uh, at two in the morning, three in the morning w without getting into real trouble. Um, you don't try that in too many other cities in Latin America, frankly speaking, <laughs> nor in, in many other parts of the world. Uh, so it's, the personal security is one of the side effects of the system. It's based in part on social controls, but also conviviality. Uh, the, the culture of living with open doors and, and solidarity is, is still a big part of the system. Uh, that sound, may sound naive, but it isn't. It's, it's still part of the system. You also write about Santeria. And and it's it, it, how and strangely it kind of has this egalitarian functioning. I mean, it, it, it sort of it has it, it, even though there's the, you said you talk about how Cuba went from being an atheist state to an agnostic state, and Santeria was kind of it was at least nudged along a little bit. And can you say a little bit about how that had an egalitarian egalitarian kind of uh, influence? Well, Cuba? first of all, one of the remarkable things that uh, Santeria or La Religión, as it's normally called in Cuba, Santeria is in sort of an outside term. Uh, Cubans refer to La Religión, which is the religion. Although it's it's a set of African beliefs, uh, it became um, a unifier to define the Cuban national soul. White people get just as much initiated in uh, in in the uh, in the various branches of the religion than than black people so it it became part of the, of the national soul and then secondly um since the revolution you had very few uh, social networks uh, that could exist other than the communist party because they were they were very jealous of their power and their influence with people and the the religious networks uh, created a kind of uh, stratum under the communist party that united people in the same in the same groups and of the same beliefs and the same rights so it it did become a, a social unifier and not to forget it unifies also miami with Havana, uh, because the same religion and the same rights are practiced uh, in Cayocho and, and in Centro Havana. And many people uh, who want to be initiated come from Miami to, to Havana, because, also because it's somewhat cheaper to, to do the rights. It's, <laughs> like, like most religions, there's always a, a money aspect to it. <laughs> the initiations are quite costly, and, and uh, many people come from Miami to uh, to Havana for religious reasons to initiate themselves and, and to perform certain rites. Yeah, that was new to me. I didn't think of Havana as a pilgrimage <laughs> city, but that's but it great. Is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It also seems like a pretty sensual place. Yeah, that that it is. Uh, there is a. Um, it, it's part, I think, the national soul. Uh, Havana was was a port city, and you always have these these excesses when when sailors come off the ship after a crossing of six weeks. You know what they're going to want. Um, and Gideon's then, Bibles, uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, of course, the the revolution contributed to that by by liberating 
girls and women. The marriage became very much a formality. Uh, sexual education became strong. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a promotion of of, uh, of free sex, but it was the 60s and it was in the air and there was quite a sexual revolution uh, and, and it's still there. Of course, the the downside of that is that when tourism started, you, uh, foreigners may take advantage of it. But there is a lot of sexual freedom in, among Cubans. It's a given, and and it's uh, it's a very sensual place, and it's a very provocative place uh, because people are very free, and they feel very free about their bodies. Plus, if you only take the music, uh, uh, salsa together with samba is of the most sensual music ever ever invented, and it, it all comes together. So it is a very central place. Um, we should only hope that it, it, the tourist tourism doesn't bring too many abuses. Uh, and you write often in the book about the, the paradoxes of the city. Is that one of the paradoxes too, that you have a kind of an attempt, a, a pretty controlling government, and yet at the same time, the spirit of freedom and expression yeah. Al- yeah. alongside of it? I think that in the end, what makes Havana in, in Cuba so special is, is those paradoxes, the uh, the coming together of impossible elements. Here you have a communist government and you have life as a constant party. You have all the heroics of, of uh, utopian politics and you have this this very sensual music. Uh, you have this, this island that was in itself not very important. It was a playground and all of a sudden puts itself on the uh, on the world map in a different way, wants to be taken seriously and be reckoned with. And you have to be Cuban to reconcile all those all those contradictions and the way people do this, uh, living under a communist system but being still a very Caribbean society. Uh, you uh, associate communism with drab and, and conform. And, uh, it's a very personable and very exuberant society. Uh, there's nothing much to do with communism as you would normally define it, or was it was as it was known in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, and it's precisely all those contradictions and the way Cubans can blend them and, and live them on a daily basis that makes the, the country and the city so special. I think you tell a story in the book that you, where you were at a dinner party, I think, with Fidel Castro, and you're talking about the sh- in the book the ship that the French ship, I think, that's the, sunk. The Coubre, yeah, yeah. With all the and, and Fidel said to you that. That he knew all these good Belgian the weapons. Good Belgian weapons. weapons. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were obsessed with with guns because um, it's often forgotten today. But the revolution was not without without resistance. Even after Havana fell to uh, to the revolution, uh, in in numerous provinces, especially in Pinar del Rio and in the Sierra Escambray, there was a lot of armed resistance. And since the the Cuban government had normally depended on the United States to equip their their armed forces, and when that fell through, they were at some point desperate for guns. Um, now the Belgians had, didn't have too many qualms of selling guns to anybody. They, they've been doing that for the longest time. <laughs> Um, and so El Comandante knew about, uh, about the quality of Belgian guns because it, uh, the shipment that exploded with that ship uh, was, was mostly Belgian, Belgian arms, as far as I understand. Did, did you, how many interactions did you have with Fidel Castro? Um, I had these long all-night dinners with him three times. What was he like? He well, he always made an impression because when when you were in his presence, you you knew that he was a living part of history. Um, he uh, he could be very informal. 
He was mostly very informal when he was in 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 a, in a smaller group of people. Was he charming? Uh, he, he could be very charming. He uh, he was not easy to have conversations with because it was a monologue. He, and he, <laughs> uh, my impression was that he always wanted to uh, to convey that he was in charge, uh, that he knew every detail of what was going on in the country. He had read the Financial Times. He had read the Economist. He had seen the Wall Street Journal. And he was obsessed with statistics. Uh, he, he quoted statistics endlessly. Uh, but he had flashes of humor. Um, he he was conscious. That he was always playing himself, basically. Uh, and and you saw it uh, in the end. What mattered to him was not the opinion of the people he was talking to. What mattered to him was how history would judge him. He was already like that when he was young. And, and as he got older, I think that was what he was concerned about, not what this or that uh, politician would think about him, but how history would judge him. And, and he was he was acting always like the character Fidel Castro. Uh, and, and you saw that. Uh. What, what, and do, 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 how many interactions do you have with his brother? Um, two. I had, a, I had lunch with him. And then had a, a long meeting in, in company of, of my, my people from headquarters. Uh, they're very different characters. Um, Raul doesn't convey that kind of, 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 of historical presence. Uh, he's always more, uh, he was always a more discreet and withdrawn man, uh, always accepted that his older brother was, was the, the historical figure. Um, he's very much more a family man than Fidel. <laughs> And he's, well, he's, he's also in his mid eighties and the conversation mostly drifts to family and to his children and his grandchildren. And um, his, was, his, was his daughter, his daughter was Mariella, the, the activist, right? Yeah. The, she's the, the LGBT activist. activist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know her very well. I, I like her a lot. She's, I have, I have a pretty good relation with her. Uh, Raul has, uh, he has a sense of humor. Um, he's, he's once he's in, in a, uh, smaller group of people he he even makes fun of himself fidel doesn't do that uh, <laughs> but raul does that <clears throat> uh, he said for instance once well uh, we castros we are we are gallegos eh? we are uh, from from the north in spain uh, if our father hadn't stayed behind in cuba at the end of the 19th century i would probably be a member of the partido popular which is the the rightest party in, in spain <laughs> he, he says those things <clears throat> And he also said, well, when we were young, we didn't understand too much about the economy, so we probably made a lot of mistakes. And if, if we had known then what we know now, we would have done certain things differently. He, he says those things. He, he criticizes himself more than, than Fidel did. You, when, when you talk with, you know his daughter well, Raul's daughter, but do you, do you talk with her about what it's like, what it's been like to be in, the, be in that family? I mean, that's got to be, I mean, that's... You know, you're a figure in history if you're if you're in that family. Yeah. Well, she she doesn't like to talk too much about that. She says that um, her work for uh, for sexual diversity was very much against her father's opinion, and that they talk about it, but that they they agree to disagree, but that they love each other. He, he's a family man. He he loves his children dearly. And she's also a very loving personality. Uh, so, but other than that, she she doesn't she doesn't like to elaborate too much on it. Uh, and I don't think she has political ambitions.
ambitions. Sometimes she has been ascribed political ambitions. I don't think she has them. She she feels good with what she's doing. And and it's been remarkable because Cuba is very uh, macho society after all. And to, to come out in, in her position uh, as strongly as she's done for sexual diversity is brave. Yeah, and you talk about, like, there are, you talk about in the book, um, cross-dressing and, you know, prostitutes, things that go on. I mean, amidst this, the, the sort of lack of again it's one of the paradoxes i guess among amidst the lack of, of of openness on one level there's all this expression on the other yeah it's one of the great paradoxes that that being said uh, all macho societies have have this current brazil has it spain has it uh, uh, but the remarkable thing is that in the caribbean by and large, especially in the English-speaking Caribbean, homosexuality is an absolute taboo. It still goes down to lynchings once in a while. And that's probably mostly due to the Protestant churches. And then you see Cuba standing out uh, so much in that respect, uh, with that kind of tolerance and acceptance and sympathy for uh, for sexual diversity, that it, it really makes them stand out in uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, and even towards Central America, I think it's, it's quite unique. Um, and it's it's real. It's real. It, it has changed attitudes in the society. Um, I don't know if you if you know about Cuban cinema, but there is this hilarious movie uh, made by my friend uh, Jorge Perugoria, uh, Pichi. It's called uh, Fatima El Parque de la Fraternidad, and it's about the uh, transvestite nightlife uh, in Havana. It's it's hilarious. Uh, I recommend it. <laughs> Fatima El Parque de la Fraternidad. And you talk about... F- Somebody in the book, an actor who... It's, it's always the same. He's, he's a close friend, Jorge Perugorio. Yeah, and he he, he had... Because did he play a gay character? Or he... In Fresa en Chocolate, it was in 1994, the first uh, Cuban movie that made it into the Oscar nominations, I think. And at the time when it was still a, a deep taboo, uh, that was long before Mariela's activism started. And it was also brave of him to, to play that character and sometimes being criticized for it. Uh, hey, you as... said sometimes on the street, too. I mean, yeah. people would... would, would, yeah. would Hurl insults at him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So things have come a long way uh, in in twenty odd years. In the book, you talk about this. I remember it struck me that this trip I think Gorbachev made to Cuba to tell Castro that the sugar oil deal is done, and you were saying that basically the the economy was it was based on this kind of precarious relationship where Cuba got lots of cheap oil and they got to export. Like a, 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 a sort of inflated rate sugar, and that that yeah, it was a barter deal that was very much to advantage of the of the Cubans because they uh, the sugar was overvalued three times and and the oil was undervalued three times, so they, they got they got a very good deal. Uh, but the the sad part of that is that in order to produce as much sugar cane as possible, they gave up on on all the rest in agriculture, and we're bearing the consequences of that till today. Cuba is, is hugely deficient in in agricultural production because they sacrificed everything. To sugarcane. Yeah, and you have an interesting discussion in the book where you're looking for economic models where like, okay, China, maybe that's too much. It's too much. Vietnam, maybe a little closer to us. Are you still? Do you still follow pretty attentively well, the, the unfolding of this? I was active uh, on that issue till practically my last day of, of ambassadorship in Cuba because I, I think the only way forward, uh, frankly, is going to be to allow more private activity, to liberate uh, agriculture from from state farming. Uh, it will have to be done. There is no way uh, you, you can stop economic reform. But the the point is that the uh, the older generation of politicians see this as a guarantee of social equality and what they, they don't want 
to see the emergence of a new uh, bourgeoisie or a new uh, better of middle class. But that is happening anyway. And I think they're mistaken in, in slowing down economic reform because they're harming the long-term perspectives of their country and their people. And But I've told them that in their face over and again. It's not it's not a secret. Uh, and again, I, I come from a, from a country and from a continent where there is a viable public sector. I don't mean you have to privatize everything. Absolutely not. Uh, but you have to see what the public sector does best and let go of all the rest because the private sector is going to do it better. And you're going to have fiscal income for the state, which means then you can go on financing your social programs. You, you have to go for a, a somewhat more European model, I think. And if you don't do it now, every year you lose, you lose influence with the society. Uh, the, the good thing about this system, you can still decide things and they're going to be done because you're totally in control. Uh, but if the society stops following you, it's going to be much more difficult to, to carry out those essential reforms. And it's, it's one of my concerns in the long term that uh, if economic reform doesn't pick up, uh, the country is going to face very difficult years. What happens when Raul Castro dies? Well, let me get my crystal ball here. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's the, the changing of the guards comes in stages. Um, Raul is stepping down as president in February 2018. Um, but he's still in control of the Communist Party. So what you will see then is that uh, whereas Raul had four four jobs, he's head of state, head of government, head of the party, and head of the armed forces, those functions will be split up over various persons. So I think you go through a, towards a more collegial uh, leadership of the country. That's one. Uh, secondly, uh, there is institution building going on. The, the Communist Party is still in control. They're the, they're the ultimate power in the country. But the National Assembly is slowly emancipating itself from the Communist Party. So you get a, a true or a somewhat more uh, believable legislature. And then th those are the steps that are currently happening. But then there will be a point in time when the leadership of the party, and all of them are in their mid to late 80s, will have to step down and will have to redefine the relationship between the civilian government, the armed forces and the party. And that's where it's, it's, it's becoming complicated because none of the younger generation uh, in, in politics, and, and if I were a Cuban politician, I would be part of the younger generation, mind you. <laughs> It's reassuring sometimes. Uh, but none of them have the kind of legitimacy that, that the revolutionary generation had. They have not fought, they have not come to power through sacrifices and, and, and battles. And the public doesn't know them very well. Um, plus, Castro was always a Castro was always a Castro. Um, the moment that mystique disappears, uh, the credibility of the system may, may also go down. And that has already happened with the younger generations. Uh, in, in every Cuban family, you have a generational conflict. Uh, the, the grandfather believed in the revolution. Uh, the middle generation uh, is somewhat disappointed that their lives haven't gotten better. And, and the, 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 the millennials are apolitical and want an iPhone and, uh, you know, and, and a flat screen TV, basically. <laughs> No, but that's that's the truth of it, and and you see that in in the university where I had quite a bit of interaction with, with young people, um, they have other expectations. Um, words are not enough anymore. Uh, you have to deliver, and they want the goods as well, and and that may that may be become a problem in in the in the midterm. 
So the, the new leadership will have to make some brave and rather radical decisions to uh, to keep the society together, to deliver more, uh, not just on ideology and words, but uh, improve on people's lives, because that's always the first demand. Of course, we have to speak about human rights and political uh, institutions and whatnot. But in Cuba, as anywhere in the world, what people want is a better life, a good job, a decent salary, be able to educate your kids in, in a decent way. And that's that's human nature everywhere. That, that's Those are the first demands, and they'll have to be met somehow. Do you think if... if United States relations can continue in a direction that, despite the current administration, that it, long term, if things wind up going more the direction President Obama was seeing, do you think that would make a better life for people in Cuba? Well, it's the U.S. model of of economy and society as such, not necessarily. I, I think if you if you take capitalism as is practiced here, it it may divide the society much more. I, I still think, uh, and not just because I worked there as a European diplomat, I still think European, somewhat more European model would be better uh, because it it would uh, limit uh, social divisions, it would limit the gap between rich and poor. Uh, there would be more redistribution of of riches. Etc. So um, the embargo has always been a very ambiguous instrument uh, because it, it was a way to to try and influence politics from the US side, but it was also a way from the Cuban side to keep things out of the country that they didn't want there. And it was, of course, also the reason for everything that went wrong. <laughs> So now you have to decide what do you want? Uh, you you want more US presence? Yes, let the tourists come, let them spend money. You want selective investment in certain sectors? You're going to need that because you have to to redo your power grid, you you have to do your water systems and that's only possible with with very uh, important investments that will hopefully come partly from the United States, but I'd, you don't want the economic model as such to be transplanted because it's it's going to divide the society too much and it's going to have fewer winners than losers, I think. Uh, because this society comes from very far. Uh, when I came there first in 1995, it, it, it was practically, uh, there was no consciousness of money. That has changed tremendously. Cubans know very well what money is today. But there was a kind of innocence and that has been lost to a large extent, but not completely. It's still a, a society that is very convivial, that can live with open doors, has little or no violent crime. Well, that's relative, but compared to that part of the other countries of that part of the world, uh, it still means something to be Cuban in the world. Uh, there is this, this pride. Even people that are not in favor of the system will acknowledge that the system put their country on the map and they're proud. It means something to be Cuban. Uh, after all, you're from a small country. But you exist, you are recognized, people know who you are in, in the entire world. So that, that counts. And that pride should also be a guarantee that you don't, uh, you don't become another U.S. protectorate again. It, it would, it would hurt my, my feelings very deeply if that would happen. Much of I love the United States. There's no doubt about that. But I don't want uh, to see Cuba become yet another protectorate. Uh, I hope that can be avoided. The country is too rich in culture and, and personality uh, to sell out just for the mighty dollar. In the book, you write about a novelist. Is it Alejo Carpentier? Is that what I'm saying? Yeah, Alejo Carpentier. Alejo Carpentier. And it's interesting, uh, you were talking about sort of his kind of, um, kind of towing a kind of leftist line, right? Because he's exiled from the right. And then you, you have this beautiful paragraph. Uh, 
You say, it's been given to my generation to see all so-called absolute truths in politics revealed for what they were and, and, uh, and will be. This was not the case for Carpentier, who stubbornly held on to a final illusion. This was and is true of many Cuban intellectuals who, have, who may yet have to pay the price for the mental slaloms they have imposed upon themselves in order to maintain 50 years of acquiescence. In a world today made up almost entirely of gray areas, intellectual adherence to unchanging truths has become a professional hazard. Yeah, I, I sincerely think that, yeah. And, and Carpentier was a case in point because he, he wrote this, this the ultimate book about the French Revolution, uh, El Siglo de las Luces. It's, it's, um, the English version is called, uh, what is it? An Explosion in a Cathedral or something like that. Yeah, your writing about that made me want to read and, it. But the thing, the thing is... <laughs> His judgment about the French Revolution is, is basically a, a camouflage judgment about the Cuban Revolution. He said, <laughs> we, the, the excess of words will not create better worlds. Uh, better worlds can only be found by man within himself. You're not telling me that this is a hidden message about the Cuban Revolution and, and excess millions of words creating better worlds. It's a hidden message. That's <laughs> that's absolutely clear to me. At the same time, he didn't want to betray where he where he came from, and the revolution had been good to him, so he camouflaged it and and hid it in hid it deep in a historical novel. But I think it's a judgment on on the revolution as such. When you, as you look around as somebody who's been a career diplomat and been all around the world, who do you see adhering to unchanging truths that where you're looking at parts of the world and saying that's professionally hazardous? <laughs> well, there are still very strong communist countries uh, where people pretend to believe in dogmas even when they don't. Uh, um, but my criticism is is largely aimed at at the generation of European intellectuals. Um, the acquiescence with with communism went, especially in France, went very deep and lasted way too long. The, there were very few brave French intellectuals who distanced themselves from Stalin in the 1930s. But you can count them on one hand: André Gide, André Breton. Uh, many people, even into the 70s and the 80s, were still declared Marxists in in uh, French academic life when they should have known better. Um, <laughs> um, and I think in in Cuba, the paradox is that Cuba is an educated society. Um, it's the most literate in the Caribbean, right? Yeah, it yeah, is. Uh, and it is, it's a society that's uh, culturally so aware, but at the same time, when it comes to politics, has to pretend to believe things they don't really believe deep down. And I think that's something that, that's a, um, an inner conflict that many intellectuals that stayed in Cuba will have to live with. And as I say, I think they will have to pay a price for that in, in the long term because you, you cannot lie to yourself for too long. Uh, many writers and intellectuals that were originally with the revolution left and went into exile because they couldn't reconcile themselves with it anymore. And I know a few of them very well. So the ones that stay behind uh, had to accommodate themselves to it. And uh, I think they live with a lot of questions deep down. So this morning before I came here on the New Jersey Transit, I know you came on the subway. So um, that's even more um, plebeian than me. So I, I salute you. I, 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 was, I watched your TEDx talk that you gave in Cuba. Yeah. And I, 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 I was really blown away. It was short and simple, but you, you held up your passport yeah. and said that this is a dreadful kind of thing. Like that, that, <laughs> <It> ba is. <laughs> that basically people traveled in previous centuries without passports uh, in, in recent previous centuries and only repressive 
countries used passports to keep track of it. And now yeah. we all have these passports. And you really made it an impassioned plea for we have a shared planet. We got to have shared ability to move. Yeah. Well, it. I think it's a lost cause. I think we have a God-given right to roam our planet, but it's it's becoming more difficult by the day rather than, than, than getting easier. Um, and I can give you the historic reference of, of what I said there. It's, it's a fact that people were, were traveling without passports. Um, it, it was, I think it was the aftermath of the First World War that uh, that made travel so difficult again because there were these huge displacements of people and refugees and uh, ethnic cleansing already then, although the, the term wasn't used. Um, a world without passports was possible in 1914 and uh, after 1918 it became completely impossible and we're still in that phase where it's... Paradoxically, the, the easier it is physically to move around, bureaucratically, the more difficult it becomes. Yeah, and, and even, do you think... So, because of certain extremist violence and things, these are just going to get, they're going to ratchet this I up think, more yeah. and more. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid of freedom of travel is, uh, well, still people travel every day, but uh, it, it's still you have to, uh, you cannot just roam the planet as, as, as a free spirit anymore. That, that's uh, more and more difficult. You have to be stamped and approved and checked and, uh, and rechecked. Okay, I, in reading your book, it, it made me want to go to Havana. When will you go back next? I mean, how often do you do you imagine spending a lot of time there in your retirement? Oh, definitely. Uh, I hope to be back in December. Uh, what will you do there? Just visiting or visit friends? But I'm I'm also probably going to record some more music. Uh, I love to work with Cuban musicians. I've done some very nice recordings with with friends and uh, and quality musicians. I'm not a very good musician anymore, so I, I like to work with people that are better than I. But I, I write a song and I, I can sit down with uh, with Cuban musicians and they write out a score for me. And uh, so I have a lot of fun doing that. So in December I'll be probably roaming the streets again, uh, playing my guitar in the studio once in a while and, uh, and talk about life and drink rum and smoke a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you tell this story of Fidel Castro's lover, right? And how there's this kind of, there's this, I think you talk about this, the, this checkpoint that doesn't exist anymore, really, but you yeah. still see the, the, the sort it's, of... It's completely gone now. We, we saw it, it, it went away in stages. It was a traffic light. Um, then there was still a, a checkpoint at both ends of the block. Uh, and then a couple of months after Fidel passed, they, they took away the, the military checkpoint. So the, the ghost has finally disappeared. It was Celia Sanchez. And it's interesting because I, my opinion of her changes, and uh, and it's typical. Of a you, to, you say in the book that you're wary of anybody, <laughs> any true believer that writes a life of a saint. Well, yeah, but <laughs> I love so that I think this is, you know, uh, okay. But but she, she was so close to Fidel, so she was part of all the decisions, the good ones and the bad ones. Uh, can I really feel sympathy for, for this person? Um, and then, uh, frankly, I vented some of my irritation at being stuck at a traffic light just because, you know, somebody who died 30 <laughs> years ago used to live there when I was in a hurry and had things to do. Um, and then how I correct myself after, by the merest coincidence, I, I've come across somebody who knew her well and she said she was an absolutely nice person. She was an early hippie. She was, she was adorable. And so I correct myself from irritation to, to respect. Yeah. She sounds complex. Cuba sounds complex. I mean, I guess everybody is, is complex. It is, but, um, Cuba is so special in so many ways that it's, uh, it's a unique place. And as I try to say at the end of the book, where I bring together a number of images of, of what uh, Havana represents for me. And uh, Havana is a, 
it's a concentrate of Cuba. Cuba itself is is a mixture of impossible elements, and in Havana, it's it's a concentrate of that mixture. So it's it's really a special place, and I hope it will always remain so, and that it will keep its spirit and its soul. Herman, thank you for talking with me. I really yeah. thank you for having I've me. Had a lovely time. Pleasure. Thank you. This pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Herman Porta Carrera for coming on the podcast. Please get his book, Havana Without Makeup, Inside the Soul of the City. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thank you again for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.